Hello, everybody out there in Internet Radio Land. This is Ruby, the Reverend Blake Ruby from Evolution. And I talk about spirituality in my show. Well, you want to listen to things? If you want religion, there's other places to go. I don't talk about religion. I talk about truth, spiritual truth, universal truth, which is the only, which is the only real thing that matters because we are spirits in the material world. And what I offer is getting to the heart of the matter. I see truth. I'm a truth seeker and I have been for many years on that path. Meant learned a lot from other people, and you can learn from me too. And if you want to be on my show if you feel like you have some, or you'd like to discuss something, just let Doug or Don know, BBS Radio, and send me an email. They have my email address. Or if you feel like calling and just discussing some issue, you know, I'm good with that. As long as it's a productive conversation, as long as it is a productive conversation, and I'm all welcome, all for that. Today I'm going to talk about next trust race that's out there, part of the soul's evolution as we progress from one lifetime to another in that progress of process of reincarnation going into the afterlife and spending time there, you know, getting back to where we came from before we were born into this world. Then we continue on in that refinement process, you know, purifying our soul, purging all the imperfections out, you know, getting rid of karmic debt, learning new things, learning about the universe and the cosmic forces that are out there available to us to use. Then we will, achieve creator God status where we can be like the creator of the universe. Don't confuse the creator of the universe with our souls, our spirits, because that was part of the plan in addition to the universe creating itself, being formed after the Big Bang one after another. Also, the third force of the universe and the fourth force. The first force of the universe, the first force of the universe was the force that created all of the planets and the sun and the moons. And the second force was the force that created all the plant and animal life on those planets uh, that are out there. And you know they're out there. The universe is teeming with life. If you don't know that, then you're just not intelligent enough to realize that at this point in time. And the third force was the force that created all the sentient life out there. Now, if you consider all the different types of life here on Earth, over a million types of insects, 30,000 types of fish in the ocean seas, rivers, and lakes, over 10,000 types of fish, excuse me, birds and reptiles, over 9,000 types of amphibians, over 5,000 types of mammals, just think of all those different types. If the creator of the universe was able to create each and every one of those little separate bodies or bigger bodies, you know, from an insect to a, an elephant or maybe a blue whale, which is 50 tons in weight, to like a praying mantis, to a hummingbird, or a 
cobra snake or crocodile or shark or a bluebird, an eagle, or maybe you name it. There's, in other words, hundreds of thousands of different bodies that the Creator has created here on Earth. The creator has the power and the knowledge to create all that life. Don't you think the creator could create anything? Isn't that a logical question? That deserves a logical answer. The answer is yes. Because we're talking with a power, a certain power here. And knowledge. The knowledge, that's the main thing. It's that knowledge into action with a kind of magic power of will. You can say that that the creator is omnipotent, but we don't really comprehend what that means. Doing. So the creator of the universe is able to create anything, and not only anything, but anywhere. If you consider that the universe is 30 billion light years in diameter, then let's say that comparing that to a country where we are neighbors with some other extraterrestrial races like the Verdans. I'm going to talk about them. They're one of the dominant species in the universe. They might be listening to my radio show right now. What else is there to do besides listening to someone like me? I don't even know how many past lives I have. I guess I'm evolved in the bad soul. But... Their home planet, and they colonize the physical universe. Like I said, they're the dominant species. They're the stereotypical extraterrestrial, grayish, tan skin, five feet, two, three inches tall, very dark eyes, kind of slanted, pointy ears. Of course, extremely intelligent. They're able to traverse the universe in very quick fashion with their spacecraft. And they've been traveling the universe for 290 million years. And so 14 million light years in a universe of 30 billion light years in diameter, from us in a country a thousand miles from one end to from one coast to another, that would make them neighbors about half a mile away. Anyway, I'm going to read from this book called The Contact Is Begun by an author by the name of Philip Kraft, who worked on the L.A. Times Metro desk back in the 90s before he retired, 25 years as an editor, and he actually won, helped win the Pulitzer Prize back in the 90s for a report covering the L.A. riots, if you remember that, in the early 90s. That all happened with Rodney King. Was it? And remember that? Anyway, he's a very brilliant author, extremely humorous too, a great sense of humor. The book is called The Contact Has Begun. I was walking to a bookstore back in Florida, Tampa, Florida, in the 90s, and just kind of browsing through the different shelves of books, and I saw this book. I picked it up and, and started reading it, looking at the pages, and I kept it, bought it, went home, and it has changed my life, along with some other books, too. I'm going to read from this book. The situation is Philip Kraft was abducted and taken aboard the spaceship called the Goodwill, which presently 
if it is still in the neighborhood, which I think it is because they have been observing us for about a thousand years, and their goal is to help us to become members of the intergalactic community. And that's what they usually do. They send out exploration starships all throughout the universe. And, you know, even though they've been traveling throughout the universe for hundreds of millions of years, they're coming up to solar systems that are uncharted. Just think about that, how large the universe is. These extraterrestrials have been exploring it for over 290 million years. And they're still coming at the solar system they haven't discovered before. Because the universe is constantly expanding. The borders of infinite space are constantly expanding. Now, isn't that a mind-blowing concept? To think that the space out there that you see in the evening sky is actually expanding. We're part of a great, fantastic, amazing, awesome experience, my friends. And we very little realize what is happening. We only see like the tip of the iceberg. But anyway, back to Philip Kraft, he was taken aboard their spaceship because part of the Verdant's plan was to make contact with human beings, abduct them, bring them on to the spaceship, give them a indoctrination and orientation and with the goal of them going back on Earth and eventually making contact with and having a summit and, as I mentioned, getting included into the intergalactic community. Presently, there are approximately 27,000 species, separate species, in the intergalactic That's but I think there's a lot more species out there in the universe that are just not evolved enough to have reached that level of evolution. And part of their plan then is to eventually have these, what they call ambassadors and deputy envoys, being from slowly to the mainstream media so that we can make that contact, have that summit, become members of the intergalactic community, have them share their technology with us, have them help us cure diseases, tell us what we're doing wrong, because obviously we're doing something wrong, shouldn't be eating that, shouldn't be doing that. And wouldn't it be great to become Star Travelers? Star Trek? Please don't talk to me about Star Trek. I don't want to hear it, because space is supposed to be a peaceful domain. If you're thinking about war in outer space, and you're the kind of people that we don't want on board as we are. How many people want to volunteer to die? Those warmongers out there, go ahead, pick up your weapon, go to the front line. Go ahead and get killed or be killed. And on peace to survive and have their own children, generations of children into the future. We want peace. There's no reason to fight. It doesn't make any sense. The war that we've got right now going on around the world does not make sense. To each other is illogical because we should be by talking it over. However, like some people will 
be able to talk it over. I'm going to take a drink. And what a terrible insult for some people to tell them that they lack the intellect. We all pride ourselves on our intelligence. Well, I ask for those people that might be listening or the ones that I'm referring to that you have a little introspection. I know we don't like, like being told what to do, but are you one of those people that could be smarter? We can get rid of war and, and ensure a peaceful future for our children's children. Does that make sense? And I know that besides the people that are listening to the radio show, these words are being put out into the atmosphere because we communicate that way. We have the ability to communicate in ways that are unknown to us. The words we speak are known because we are one. We are a human race. and We are interconnected. We are family. We are human beings. We have the same bodies. We share the same minds, kind of. We're separate individuals, but we're connected because deep inside, we're all the same. Does that make sense? War is a thing of the past. When we get maybe quite a few more years into the future, hopefully not two more many, we're going to look back at our past war and killing and look at it as an insane period in our past because there is good reason. Wait, back to Phil. He was taken aboard the spaceship for three days. He had his indoctrination and orientation. And this chapter I'm going to read, he's talking with one of the burdens and these are beautiful beings, by the way, these burdens. They're extremely intelligent. I mean, just being in their presence would blow anybody away. You know, it'd be like being hit by a tank. Their mind is so powerful. You know, that's why you hear about these people that are abducted and they're lost in that 1,000-mile stare, you know, like a deer in the headlights of a car because... All of a sudden, they come face-to-face with these beings who have the capability to travel around the universe, you know. They're very advanced technologically and spiritually, and and just some people just are hypnotized by that. Physically and mentally useless, if you will. They can't function because they're blown away, simply blown away by these extraterrestrials. Their mind is boggled. Would that happen to me? I don't know. It might. Um, you'd have. It didn't happen to him. Now, at first, maybe yes. You know, depending on how intelligent, how evolved you are, eventually you come around to your senses, and then maybe when they would talk to you, try to talk to you, and snap you out of your spell, so to speak, and you know, say something like, "Hi, my name is Gus. I am the leader of these extraterrestrials here. Welcome aboard our spaceship." You are here for an indoctrination and orientation. We're going to give you a tour of the ship, and you're going to be aboard for three days, and the purpose of your visit is to write a book, to go back and let the human beings on planet Earth know that we... Why? Because we want the universe to be a peaceful place. 
for global war and killing that's gone on in the past. And they know that we are a very violent species. Anybody want to debate that? However, because of the beautiful people in this world, not tyrants, dictators, bullies, killers, murderers, rapists, about 20% of the population in the world, the 80% of us are good, decent, family-oriented, loving, kind, generous, artistic, musical, very cool, loving people, me included. All the people at BBS Radio and the talk show hosts also. It's that small minority of the population that is running roughshod, usually over all of us. They drag us into their wars. They control us. There's a lot of billionaires included in that 20%. So we are today being led to the slaughterhouse by these people, you know, who start wars, the military-industrial complex. You know, they won't even tell us the truth about life out there in the universe. And they know, some of these people know that there is, yet they don't want to tell us because we can't handle the truth. And we might panic. Isn't that totally ridiculous? Someone deciding for us the way we can think and act? Anyway, I'm going to read from this book here. I highly recommend it. The Contact Has Begun by Phil Kraft. As I mentioned, he's a wonderful, amazing author. Extremely funny. I'm going to start with this one chapter where he's talking with Gus. I'm going to have to, let's see, move my, I need a little bit more light. Maybe a little bit more. i got to move my stand here to get more light on the book. Okay. They are our distant neighbors. Gus. The extraterrestrial chatted amiably with me as we retraced our route to the boardroom on board the ship. He had boundless curiosity about my thoughts and opinions on the whole spectrum of contemporary issues. Even though he had numerous contacts with individual humans, he said it was always from the standpoint of physiological and anatomical examinations. And during that process, the abductees were asleep for the most part and were on the ship for only a few hours at a time. Only in the last several months, when designated ambassadors and deputy envoys began coming on board, did he have the opportunity to engage in extended personal conversations with humans. While the Virgins had been studying Earth and its civilizations for a millennium, they knew the planet from a detached perspective as observers. Gus yearned to see it from a I know that armies march off to war, he said, but I don't know what the individual soldier is feeling. Our people have never personally experienced war. He picked my brain at every opportunity during our free moments together when we weren't conducting business in the boardroom as I'm sure he did with all the other recent visitors who've been brought aboard for the indoctrination and orientation. Once, while we were chatting in my quarters as I was eating one of those singularly delectable meals, 
or made from plant matter. Gus casually asked me if I'd ever been in a fight. My hand stopped mid-fork in my mouth and uh, him suspiciously to try to engage the import of the question. I think that momentarily the thought flashed through my mind that I was being challenged. And I'm not ashamed to admit that I scared the daylight out of me. It was an innocent enough query, however, just another in a deluge of questions prompted by curiosity that they'd thrown my way over the course of my time aboard. Oh, sure, I said. I don't think I know any man who hasn't had a fight at one time or another in his life. Mostly it happens when we are boys. After we become adults, men usually tell differences in other ways, such as through the courts, rather than punching it out. What is it like, he asked. What, fighting? Yes, what goes through your mind when you face another person in physical combat? I really couldn't give much insight into the nature of human aggression because I had never had a physical fight as an adult. I had my share of rough and tumble scrapes while growing up in a gritty coal mining and railroad town. But the last real fight I had was when I was 16, some 46 years earlier, when I was blindsided by a circumstance that broke my nose. I suppose there is fear and anger, I said. It has been so long, but I do remember the lightning bolt-type pain that slammed into my brain when I took the punch. I couldn't see for several seconds and blood, lots of blood. Fascinating, Gus said quietly. What purpose was served by the combat? What issues or differences of opinions were resolved? It was a question for which I could find no satisfactory answer. I shrugged. It was so stupid, I said. You've never been in a fight, I asked. I think it's important that you understand our position on combat, he said. But I can't give you a brief answer. Why don't we have a private discussion later? But I'm getting ahead of myself. That conversation actually occurred some hours later, so I'll deal with it in a chapter. We reached the boardroom, and after we were all seated, dust getting floor. Where is your planet located, I asked. The Virgins told me that their home planet is about two and one-half times the size of Earth and is located in a nearby galaxy, at least in astronomical terms, about 14 million light years from Earth. A light year is the distance a light will travel in a year at a speed of 186,000 miles per second. That's roughly 6 trillion miles. So 14 light years is in the neighborhood of 84 trillion miles. Multiply that by a million for 14 million light years, and the distance is 84 million trillion miles. That's an 84 followed by 18 zeros. Now, that may seem like a far piece, but since the outer reaches of the universe are about 15 billion light years away from Earth, 14 million light years is less than one one thousandth, one thousandth of that distance. Put in simpler terms, 
if the universe, which I mentioned this before, which is about 30 billion light years in diameter, were a country 1,000 miles across, live less than half a mile from us. That, for all, makes them neighbors. Their atmosphere is similar to Earth, with just a slightly higher oxygen content, and temperature ranges are also comparable to ours in a naturally occurring state, although they have complete control over the weather and climate and can adjust either, including temperatures, to suit their needs. Their sun is slightly larger than Earth, but their planet is also in an orbit a bit farther away from it so that they get about the same amount of heat and light as Earth does from its own sun. A year on their planet would equal about three Earth years, or roughly 1,000 Earth days. A day on their planet, however, is equal to about 55 Earth hours. There are 17 planets in their solar system, and that probably includes moons. They took their first steps into space 229 million years ago. All time frames mentioned here, years, hours, days, or Earth measurements. Although it took several million years before they achieved their current level of technology. As to the extent of that technology, both in space exploration and home planet advances, there is no way that I could possibly come close to describing it. But let me just touch upon some of the highlights that I learned in the course of my discussions on my personal tours of the ship itself. I already mentioned that the Burgess have complete control over the climate and weather of their home planet. This also holds true of the other planets that they have colonized, but more about this later. Obviously, they have the capacity to travel many times faster than the speed of light. They said it is a million times quicker in conventional travel mode but my mind boggled at that figure, and I couldn't accept it at first. A million times faster than the speed of light would mean that they could cover the 14 million light years distance between their world and ours in 14 years. As the extraterrestrials spoke, I began to become more receptive to their claims. They explained that they didn't really travel in the conventional sense of actually moving across a set distance from point A to point B. Rather, they just set their course for a specific location in the universe, engage their mechanisms, and simply disappear from their point of origin and instantly reappear at their destination. Their machines have limits, however, so they cannot traverse an infinite distance in one jump. They do it in stages. Let's say they want to travel down the road. That's six million trillion miles. They can cover that distance in one year, traveling at a million times faster than the speed of light. So if they set a course to jump at the maximum capacity of, let's say, six million miles, and they step on the gas, they instantly disappear and reappear six million miles away. If they put the machine on pilot or cruise control, so to speak, so that the device automatically activates after each jump and it activates a trillion times in one year, they would find themselves a million light years away in that time. As near as my limited arithmetic abilities will allow, I figure that a trillion jumps per year works out to about 32,000 times a second. 
But even that would be a slow way of getting around the universe, considering its vastness. In conventional travel mode at one million times the speed of light, it would take the burden 15,000 years to get to the edge of the universe. Apparently, they can cut the time down considerably on these longer distances by traveling through wormholes, time and space warps, and black holes. They didn't dwell too much on the subject because it was understood that I would not be able to grasp it. Suffice it to say that the burdens can get around the universe in pretty quick fashion. If I were a general assignment newspaper reporter in 1945, I think I could do a fairly decent job of reporting that an atomic bomb was detonated over Japan without having any understanding of nuclear physics. What's to say, except there was one mighty big explosion. The scientists could fill in the details. As such, several human scientists have been well-versed on the subject and acting in their capacities as ambassadors will issue a clear statement when the time is ripe. Thanks to their technology, the Verdant's average lifespan is in the neighborhood of an astonishing 20,000 years. It wasn't always so, of course, because they evolved like all living life forms with natural lifespans that first lasting only several generations. After millions of years of trying, they discovered the secrets that allowed them to keep pushing the limits on life extension. The first faltering steps gave them a couple of decades of added time. Gradually, it became several hundred years, then several thousand years, until they finally hit what they now believe is the absolute limit of 20,000 years. They have not been able to improve upon that mark for several million years, as a side note, it occurs to me that in a conventional travel mode, it would be theoretically possible for an individual with a lifespan of 20,000 years to make a 15,000-year one-way trip to the edge of the universe. Now, this breakthrough could lead to some pretty interesting side effects, and it did, they said. First and foremost was the obvious need to limit their birth rate. But even if each individual simply replaced him or herself, they would soon run out of living space. So they began colonizing, moving large segments of the population to other planets. Fascinating was the revelation that Mother Nature stepped in and orchestrated a fundamental change in the verdant physiology whereby females can bear but one offspring in their lifetime. They told me that they have the medical technology, of course, to circumvent that natural restriction, but it is rarely utilized. Every member of the species is aware of control. Compliance is of a cultural nature, and there is no specific law against having more than one child. Lest there be concerned that the burdens have colonization designs on the earth, it should be stressed that they never displace native populations of any other planet. The worlds they colonize are exclusively uninhabited by intelligent life forms. In fact, most of the planets are 
initially uninhabitable and would not support life in their natural states. But their engineers and scientists contain even the most hostile environment, even going so far as changing the or orbit of the planet to move it closer to its sun if the planet is too cold or moving it out farther if it's too close and therefore too hot. Imagine that, my friends, moving, moving the planet's orbit around the sun, having the technology to do that. Isn't that amazing? Planets with the rudimentary elements to sustain life, where simple plant and animal life forms have evolved, are also candidates for colonization. The engineers go in, customize the atmosphere to meet their biological needs, rearrange the topography, and alter the weather and climate if necessary. All native plant and animal life forms are studied for compatibility. They have no qualms about eliminating plants or simple animal life forms that prove to be obstacles to colonization. However, any planet that contains native sentient life forms is considered off-limits for colonization. Scouting parties from that distant world, their distant world, are engaged in a constant search of the universe, exploring, mapping, and cataloging. Planets with hostile environments that cannot support life or that can't sustain only the most basic life forms are tagged as possible colonization sites. Others that contain higher forms of life are classified according to the inhabitants' level of development. Especially if they have developed complex civilizations, receive the most scrutiny. Once a planet with higher life forms is discovered, the burdens take up positions in that particular solar system and begin a period of observation and study that lasts anywhere from several weeks to several hundred years. The planets requiring the shortest periods of study are those whose most advanced species is considered to be at least 10,000 years away from developing the capabilities of spaceflight. The planet is cataloged and the exploration party moves on. Several thousand years may pass before it is revisited to determine the level of advancement of the civilization. Those civilizations that have progressed to the point where they are within 1,000 years of taking their first steps into space to visit the planets and eventually the stars are assigned a permanent observation party. The purpose is to ensure that the species under study does not pose any threat to any other cosmic civilization once it embarks into space. Like I mentioned, space is supposed to be peaceful, my friends. The observation team will put the planet and its inhabitants under the microscope, in a matter of speaking. It will study and chronicle the history, the cultures, the technology, the languages, and the psychological, physiological, and anatomical makeup of the inhabitants. It will learn everything there is to learn about inhabitants. If it is determined that the species is suitable to become a partner in the Intergalactic Federation of Sovereign Planets, the observation party becomes, in effect, a nursemaid. It will guide the species through the final critical stages to ensure a smooth transition 
into his venture towards interstellar travel. Interstellar travel. Interstellar travel, my friends. Does that sound appealing to anybody? Wouldn't you like to be exploring the stars instead of fighting wars? Although they are a peaceful people, the Verdans are quite prepared to take draconian steps to prevent a particular ferocious and warlike people like us from posing a threat to other civilizations, they told me. Their scientists can predict with great accuracy after a reasonable period of study whether a particular species would become a menace to the interplanetary community if it were allowed to make the transition to space travel. In the darkest scenario, the dangerous species is simply isolated, denied access to space travel. They have been, there have been instances where ferocious animals have developed the intelligence necessary through evolution to go into space and have compatible bodies to physically achieve their feat if left to their own devices. In such cases, isolation becomes the only option and they are confined to their home planet. This, of course, requires intervention by the star travelers, which generally involves sabotaging the first preliminary satellites launched in space. It's not hard to imagine the level of frustration that occurs when space probe after space probe after space probe inexplicably fails and falls back to the planet in contradiction of all scientific theory. Their scientists probably will be pulling their hair out. They have hair to pull out, of course. The verdict said that invariably the total exasperation finally leads to abandonment of the space program. Of course, permanent monitoring parties are assigned to these planets to maintain the program of sabotage. Each generation might once again try. Having been denied access to the heavens and being particularly ferocious to begin with, the reason for isolation, it is not uncommon for a species to release its pent-up aggravation by warring among itself. Time is a leavening agent, though, and there are only two possible outcomes when a species is isolated. If it doesn't destroy itself through internecine slaughter, which occasionally happens, it eventually evolves into a more conciliatory and cooperative species that can live in harmony with itself and its neighbors. At that point, it is allowed to resume its space program and ultimately join the intergalactic community. So far, something like 27,000 species have been assimilated into the Universal Alliance of Planetary Civilizations. Many of those species originally had been isolated and confined until evolution did its job. Only about 200 species are currently confined to their home planets, the Burden said. In addition, the Burdens themselves have colonized roughly 246,000 formerly uninhabited planets. Some of these are in the Milky Way galaxy, but the vast majority are scattered to the farthest reaches of the universe. Their population is variously estimated at the total of 500 trillion on all of the planets, which range from those as small as our own moon to those as large as our own sun. 
An artificial gravity system is employed to make the magnetic pull on the colonized planet similar to the natural state of burden. Of the 27,000 other species that have advanced civilizations on an equal number of planets and have become star travelers, there is a population of approximately 150 trillion. They didn't have to say so at this point, but I suspected that the burdens were probably the leaders of the universe. Superpower based upon their population and number of planets they control. As I would learn later, this assessment was far off the mark. It seems obvious to me at the time that the burdens were the only colonists as well. Yes, the more accurate. Suddenly, I realized that I was very tired, and Gus was quick to notice. We had spent about 12 hours in the three sessions after my nap, including two breaks. I had been aboard the ship approximately 20 hours, making it somewhere between 9 and 11 o'clock Wednesday night at home. I also became aware that I had to use the bathroom. Gus had told me that I was to get a full night's sleep and that we would resume the meeting in the morning. The Star Travelers were gracious and thoughtful hosts, and they kept me supplied with a regular and ample supply of refreshments during the meeting. There were cookies, fresh fruits, potato chips, pretzels, finger sandwiches, sodas, and cold water. I snacked judiciously during the 12 hours. The burdens themselves neither drank nor ate during that time. I was escorted back to my quarters where I used the facilities, took another shower, and put on a clean robe and underwear and a new pair of slippers. The bathroom was thick and span and had obviously been tidied up while I was away. The dirty towels had been replaced with fresh ones, and my previously worn garments, which I had dropped on the floor, I'm almost ashamed to admit it, had been removed. Again, the door slid open when I decided to exit. Gus and another burden who bore the name tag Gina, the female I mentioned in Chapter 1, were waiting for me. A cart of delicious-looking food had been wheeled into the room. I dined on macaroni and cheese, garlic toast, a crisp garden salad with blue cheese dressing, and plump red strawberries. I passed up the steaming Italian sausage and the baked ham because I'm not much of a meat eater. I chased the food down with an ice cold beverage. I also passed on the desserts, but they did look tantalizing. A rich chocolate ice cream, banana cream pie, and tapioca pudding. Where do you guys get this stuff, I asked. Is there a supermarket somewhere in the neighborhood that I don't know about? I suppose the satisfaction of a good meal had something to do with my obviously expansive mood. The two burdens simply stared at me. Had I stumped them with their question? The food, I said, pointing to the cart. Oh, Gus replied, we grow it. It's plant matter. It contains all the... That's not real meat? I asked, picking up one of the sausages. Mercy, no, Gina replied. If I hadn't been looking at that unchanging neutral face, I would have bet that she had spoken about shock or disdain. We don't kill animals. Well, in that case, I'll treat myself, I said, and popped the sausage into my mouth. It was scrumptious. How fatting is it? 
I ask between chews. You can eat as much as your appetite will allow, Gina said. Your metabolism body mass will remain at ideal levels. You're kidding, I exclaimed. I've been watching my calories. What about the desserts? All processed vegetable matter, she replied. Even the fresh fruits, milk, eggs, everything. Morning. About calories, your body will take only what it needs for current use and will discard the rest. Now you tell me, I said, and dug into the banana cream pie. While I was eating, Gus explained that she had been assigned to be my personal guide and attendant. He said I was free to roam the ship and Gina would accompany me. There were only a few places that were off limits, including the bridge and the private quarters of the ship's officers and the other prominent abductees. He called them visitors who might be aboard at the time. I assumed that the Burdens wanted to keep the other humans and myself isolated from each other, which is why their quarters were restricted. I wanted to preserve the human's privacy. That stood in stark contrast to the utter lack of privacy that I had in the examination room when he was first being aboard the ship. Even here, there is a pecking order, a class system, I thought. The people on the examination tables were just specimens whose purpose would have been served once they had been sent back to their home. However, the VIPs, the ambassadors, and I assume, like me, got special consideration because we would play pivotal roles after we returned to Earth. That is, our continued goodwill would be required. We might be uncooperative and justifiably so, if the burdens went probing around their anuses. An image of the fat person in the examination room flashed through my mind. It turned out that this assessment was unfair. However, the burdens have an enormous respect for all sentient life forms including those species who have to be isolated due to their dangerous tendencies. The logistical considerations required the large central examination room, I was told. Since most of the subjects were asleep during the brief periods on the ship, it was felt that they wouldn't suffer any appreciable loss of dignity as a result of being examined out in the open. But since the ambassadors and deputy envoys were required to be awake during most of the time aboard, every effort was made to respect their individuality and to ensure their comfort. This included private quarters. I actually ran into one of these distinguished guests later. After I finished stuffing myself with banana cream pie, for which there would be no caloric penalty, I thought I'd take Gus up on his offer to let me tour the ship. I wasn't yet ready for bed because of the earlier nap. Gus Gus left the room and Gina stayed. She asked me where I wanted to go. I told her that I'd like to get a look into space. Although I'd never seen any portholes, I had not yet had the opportunity to actually, although I had seen many portholes, I had not yet had the opportunity to actually peer out of one, I told her. She said, come. I followed her out the door and into the corridor. We hadn't gone more than 50 paces before I spotted another human strolling towards us 
accompanied by a verdant. When we were within 20 feet of each other, I immediately recognized him. These guys weren't kidding when they said they were bringing aboard some very important people. This guy was big time. It turned out that he was also taking a tour with his personal guide in attendance. The guides made no attempt to keep us from seeing each other. Of course, this prominent person would not have recognized me, but I had no trouble identifying him. He stopped me as we were passing each other and asked, education and orientation? I must admit that I was intimidated by being in his presence. Yes, sir, I responded. He extended his hand and we exchanged a handshake. Gina and the other guide simply stood aside and let us talk. I'll be leaving in a few hours, he said. How long have you been aboard? Last night, I think, I said hesitatingly. Wait, let me see. About 20 hours, maybe a little more. Well, you have so much to learn, he said with a smile. I've been here about three or four days as far as I can figure. Isn't that fantastic? What an adventure. I can't wait for the actual meeting between our two peoples. I was confused. Wait a minute, I said. I can drop out of sight for a few days and not be missed because I don't have a public. But how can you? He chuckled. Oh, my wife and I are on vacation in Hawaii. Well, that's what we're supposed to be, where we're supposed to be, he said with a wink. Your wife is with you, I asked. Oh, definitely. We came up together. Now, that's what I call a ride, he said with obvious merriment. I was surprised to learn this in light of what I had been told. What was it they said? Only lone individuals were chosen? Of course, there was no longer any need for secrecy, so the policy against multiple abductions to prevent corroboration apparently was no longer operational. That made sense. In fact, corroboration was actually an asset now that the extraterrestrials were about to reveal themselves. See you down below, he said, as he continued his stroll. Gina and I resumed our walk down this long, wide corridor. Actually, Gina pointed out, unlike the visitor we had just met, many of the potential ambassadors were not able to disappear for any length of time without arousing great suspicion, or even worse, alarm that might bring the police or other authorities to investigate. In those situations, it was necessary to return the visitors to their beds each night so they could maintain their public visibility and avoid unexplained absences. This meant, of course, that the POEI program, indoctrination education, in other words, had to be dragged out over a period of several weeks or even months, depending upon the availability of the potential ambassadors. The Verdants preferred to complete the program in one intensive three- or four-day session, such as the one I was currently going through. But these extended exercises were simply unavoidable at times. High-profile personages simply did not have the luxury of being able to drop out of sight for several days at a time. And, of course, the nighttime sessions had to be limited to no more Less the business become what on earth the following day. I'm going to fast forward a little bit here. And 
they're getting into this room, space. So I fast-forwarded to here. How am I doing on time? I think I got about three minutes. The room we were in was very dark, with just enough light to allow us to keep from bumping into objects or each other. Gina took my hand and led me to a raised circular platform in the middle of the dome. Let's see how much longer this goes on for. Well, I'm going to put the book down. I'll read more in my next show because I'm running out of time here. I wanted to tell you about how he was simply blown away by what he saw because once they got into this dome-like area with a glass bubble, he was able to see outer space and the stars, which he said were like three times bigger than what we see in the evening sky. And there's millions of them. And the light actually shined into that room once he was able to lower the natural light. And he said it was so beautiful that his eyes watered over. So beautiful, my friend, that you could look into outer space unobstructed by the atmosphere of planet Earth and see all those stars that are out there. It would make you cry. You would be so emotional because it is so beautiful. It's too beautiful to have happened by accident, my friend. So therefore, there is a creator out there an intelligence, which is omnipotence and omniscient. The creator knows everything. I mean, nothing. There's nothing that the creator does not know and has power to do anything anywhere in the universe. We serve because the creator lives in us. We have that peace of the supreme creator, our soul, is a little bit of the light of the Supreme Creator and our spirit is part of our soul. It's like the lamp of our spirit. I have one minute left, my friends. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a good week as we get closer to Christmas. May the spirit of the season be with you. Remember back to that time when there was divine intervention like never before on planet Earth. I'll talk more about that the next show. Thank you again for listening. I love you. Here's a prayer. Creator of the universe, please bless us all, everyone. Keep us safe and well. Help us to have peace instead of war. Goodbye, everybody. Talk to you next week.